Americans have always had a sense of adventure. But does exploring the world have to mean destroying the Earth? Climate One Conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats. I'm Greg Dalton. Summer vacation is here, and many people are hitting the highways and taking to the skies. So aviation is one of the fastest growing contributors to uh, climate change. And along with that, there's this upward trajectory of travelers. But in contrast to that, there's a decline in uh, vertebrate animal species. Since I was in high school, the number of species has declined by approximately 60%. I'm taking my family and two dozen Climate One members on a small cruise ship around Svalbard, a Norwegian archipelago near the North Pole that is home to the Doomsday Seed Vault. We'll learn about climate change with experts from Yale and MIT and expect to see stunning Arctic beauty. I'm painfully aware of the irony and feel guilty hopping on a plane when we know what it's doing to the planet. Visiting a place, whether Mount Everest or the Galapagos Islands, creates a personal connection that can be powerful. You go to places like Nepal, Tibet, or the Himalayas, where we have a massive problem with global warming. It's important to go over there, see firsthand what the issues are, and, you know, and to come back and try and do something about it. On today's program, we talk with three veterans of adventure and eco-travel who have been doing just that. Jennifer Palmer is founder of Women for Wildlife and an advocate for women and girls in science. Jim Sano is Vice President for Travel, Tourism, and Conservation at the World Wildlife Fund. And Norbu Tenzing is Vice President of the American Himalayan Foundation. His father, Tenzing Norgay, was the Nepali Sherpa who first reached the summit of Mount Everest with Sir Edmund Hillary in 1953. Jim Sano starts off by recalling his trip across Antarctica in 2000, retracing the route taken by Ernest Shackleton nearly a century before. I had the great fortune to gets a permit from the Falkland Islands Authority to cross South Georgia Island, which is where uh, Ernest Shackleton ended up in his, after his uh, incredible journey uh, on the 23-foot wooden boat uh, from Elephant Island to, um, to South Georgia, where uh, the expedition first started. I co-led this expedition uh, to go on skis and sleds and ropes and everything to retrace his route. Um, So we tried to be very faithful using GPS and coordinates and everything. Uh, And on the fifth day, we were in a total whiteout. And in Shackleton's book and also in John Lansing's book called Endurance, which I highly recommend, um, we were expecting a fairly sizable icefall at the end of the uh, crossing. And I was out in the lead, all roped up with uh, my sled behind me and others behind behind me as well who were belaying me. And I was expecting uh, lots of crevasses and big chunks of ice. But then I suddenly found myself um, uh, with my skis on a beach. And in the ensuing 100 or so years, the glacier had receded uh, significantly so that there was no ice fall. And that had a very powerful impression upon me in terms of how um, climate change is really affecting uh, the world's glaciers. 
So you're yeah, expecting to ski, and you yeah, you hit sand. Quite a quite a right. quite a right. moment. Mm-hmm. Norbu Tenzing, tell us about um, <laughs> a moment where uh, you were never particularly called to uh, mountaineering. A lot, some of your siblings were, but there was a moment where you had a virtual ascent, where you got to walk in your father's shoes on the top of Everest. Well, um, I f- feel um, very lucky that I uh, didn't have to. Uh, climb Everest like many members of my family and Sherpas <laughs> make a living. So I thought virtual would be much more better. Uh, <laughs> um, so this past year, I've been working on a project with some filmmakers to recreate the first ascent uh, of Everest with my father and Ed Hillary, uh, along with uh, Peter Hillary, Ed's uh, son, uh, and my brother, Jamling, who are actually both in uh, South Georgia Island as we speak on a ship. Hmm. Um, so it was an interesting project to have a very um, curated and, uh, f- uh, I guess, second-hand account, but what our fathers passed down to us so that people could actually, without having to climb Everest, see what it felt like to be the first on the summit and to recreate that experience, to see the vast expanse of the Tibetan plateau out there, looking down at the monasteries in Tibet and into uh, Nepal, um, so I'm very excited about that, and uh, I hope uh, this project will uh, happen sometime uh, this year. So does that mean other people can kind of step into uh, to be virtually on the top of Everest? Absolutely, uh, absolutely, and the experience is very real. Uh, you really think you're on top. Can you breathe? <laughs> yes, you don't need oxygen. <laughs> uh, Jen Palmer, you uh, worked among many travel things. You did a gap year program, uh, and uh, you projected a, a film on a screen on a, hung on a sheet over, hanging over the ocean. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was really fortunate to lead a group of students, much like all of you here in the audience today, uh, recent graduates that embarked on a journey about three months' worth of traveling to very remote parts of Indonesia. Asia, and one of the communities that we lived with uh, was the Bajau community. And these are ocean-faring uh, people. And, and in fact, they, they distinguish themselves from the land people who live on islands because the Bajau historically had traveled by boat. They have settlements they live in now, which are basically stilts that are still built on top of the ocean. And we spent quite a bit of time there talking to them a lot about climate change and how it's impacting their communities and the livelihood that they've grown to to know and love. And one of the biggest things that they're noticing is uh, a a huge change in in their coral reef habitats and in the abundance of fish that they're able to catch. And so uh, I worked on a film called Chasing Ice, um, which had a lot to do with the glaciers. And uh, so what we did was we actually screened the film for the Bajau people in the middle of the ocean um, on, on their settlement on stilts. And so using what limited technology we could, we tied up bed sheets and all all the fishermen came and the community came and the children came and they were literally hanging out on boats and watching this film as it was being translated into the local dialect for the people. And I've screened this film all over the country and probably hundreds and hundreds of times, but to see the, the looks on their faces as they learned about what is a glacier and what's going on around the world and how that's connected to the issues that they're going on and seeing and the storms are getting worse and their homes are getting damaged and the sea level is rising and they're really uh, challenged right now. And to make that connection and to be able to have a dialogue with that community was was very special and, and heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time. 
And what's it like to talk to those people who contributed least, and yet they're least prepared to kind of deal with it? Uh, they didn't cause this issue, but no, they're feeling was, it first and worst. There were a lot of emotions that came up. There was a, a little bit of anger of we didn't do this, but we're we're the ones that are being impacted the most. And I've I've worked with other communities across the South Pacific that are dealing with that as well. Um, you know, the people throughout Kiribati are becoming climate refugees. They're going to have to leave their home, and and yet. They live in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. This is not something that they greatly contributed with, but certainly something that they are very much being impacted by. And that film, uh, uh, Chasing Ice, you showed in one particular congressional district. And tell us how that actually moved that member of Congress from being Yeah, there. it was a really, it's, it's an amazing film, by the way. It's on Netflix. It's done really well. And, and the same production company just produced Chasing Coral, which is another very powerful um, story about climate change and the impacts of coral around the world. Um, but we decided to do a little bit of an experiment with that film where we took it to one congressional district in Ohio in Columbus. Um, where Congressman Pat Tiberi was there. And uh, prior to this um, event that we did, um, he was a climate change denier. And we brought the film to the district. We had about 80 different screening events with 80 different partners um, from all sorts of different backgrounds, from farmers to business operators to um, you know, schools to faith-based communities, and we just sat and had a discussion as how, how does climate change impact you personally and the things that you care about? And through those several months of doing events, those people reached out to their congressmen, and they really expressed their concern from issues that they cared about, and, um, and he actually ended up switching his view on climate. So it was really powerful to show how people can reach out to their local politicians to create change that they believe in. Um, it was very inspiring. Jim Sano, paint the picture for us uh, worldwide in terms of uh, there's a growing middle class in the emerging economies. They're starting to travel. Uh, aviation is a big part of a growing part of carbon uh, emissions. A lot of industries have started to reduce or slow the growth of their carbon emissions. So tell us how big a piece travel is of the whole global climate picture. Okay. Um, approximately in about 80 um, percent uh, of your of your travel, that your carbon footprint associated with travel is associated with transportation. Uh, the other 20% is all the activities you do on the trip. The level of tourism now internationally is about 1.1 billion travelers. Um, and that is projected to grow to about uh, 1.8, 1.9 billion by 2030 mm -hmm. per year. Um, so um, aviation is one of the fastest growing contributors to uh, climate change. And along with that, you see this, uh, there's this upward trajectory of travelers. Uh, but in contrast to that, there's a, um, a decline in uh, vertebrate animal species. There's, since I was in high school, uh, the number of species has declined by approximately 60%. And then, as you mentioned, with, with coral reefs, something like 90% of the coral reefs are threatened in Australia. In general, about 75% around the world. And they recently did a study in terms of the economic value of those coral reefs. It's about $29 billion, and approximately $10 billion of that is tourism. The Reverend Sally Bingham founded Interfaith Power and Light, a religious response to climate change. Here's how she thinks about the ethical dilemma of air travel. 
clearly flying in big jets around the world has a negative impact on climate. We all know that. However, I'm working with the religious community and I could justify my travel by informing other people of faith around the world that this is an issue we have to be involved in. And if I weren't allowed to go there, or if I were to think that the impact was so horrible that I wouldn't travel there, then the people that I've been talking to over the 20 years about faith, the faith community's obligation to do something about climate change, they never would have heard that message. That's the Reverend Canon Sally Bingham. Um, Jen Palmer, you ever feel guilty on a plane? I would say that I've had moments like that for sure. Um, however, much as she expressed, virtually all of my travel has been inspired with, with the quest of creating change. So whether that's through education or through research or through outreach or through telling the story of, of the people that are, that are impacted. Um, so although there's, there's a piece of me that sits on a plane and, go, and says, okay, I'm, I'm contributing to this, when you think about it in, in the grand context of the people that I'm, I'm helping have the experiences and they're becoming ambassadors for the these places. They're, they're coming back and they're telling stories and they're creating videos and they're writing articles and they're having dialogues and they're creating change. So I, I do feel that I've become an, an agent of that change. And I, I, I struggle to think of very many times that I've traveled that it wasn't involved in a project of some kind in that capacity. So you think a lot before you take a trip. You don't just yeah. yeah, yeah. I really do. And I think a lot about where I'm going and the issues that those places are facing, whether it's wildlife or the culture, and how can I help? How can I sit there and listen to what they're telling me? And how can I bring that home and create solutions? Norbu Tenzing, your homeland is melting, partly because of <laughs> air travel. Um, how do you feel when you get on an airplane? Well, you have to get there somehow, right? And um, I feel, like Jen mentioned, that uh, when people um, travel, it's vital to travel very responsibly. Um, you go to places like Nepal, Tibet, or the Himalayas, where we have massive problem with uh, global warming. Uh, it's important to go over there, see firsthand what the issues are, and, you know, and to come back and try and do something about it. You know, it's important for young people, for example, to go up to the mountains to, when they hear about climate change to see firsthand on the ground, you know, the potatoes aren't growing the way they used to. And this is how 7,000 people who depend on the mountains live on every year. Um, when we see the glaciers uh, melting over there, when you see the lakes that are about to burst, you know, they have big ramifications for people who live in our villages who've been living there for centuries. And that uh, goes all the way down to half a billion people, down through India and to Bangladesh. And so it's really important to travel, I think. And how you get there, uh, you know, um, is also important, taking into consideration how you, how you get there. But to be responsible, to work with people who have a sense of community, people who have a sense of, of giving back, and, um, you know, which is why I really enjoy what I'm doing. And that's what brings me to my part of the world every year. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about seeing the world without trashing the planet. Coming up, why taking that cruise may not be as bad for the climate as you might think. Let's say you're taking a cruise to Alaska and you put your numbers in the carbon footprint calculator, you'll find that on a large cruise vessel, your footprint is half of that 
as a small, let's say, 100-passenger vessel. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One, so you realize that it's time to pull every lever we have to solve the climate crisis. Unfortunately, it's easy to overlook the impact that our investments have on the environment. Many investment funds support companies that cause harm to people and the planet. But it doesn't have to be that way. Change Finance offers investments that are fossil fuel free and align with your values without sacrificing returns. Go to change-finance.net slash climate to learn more and start investing today. Change Finance is a registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell any product. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about mindful travel. My guests are Jim Sano of the World Wildlife Fund, Jennifer Palmer of Women for Wildlife, and Norbu Tenzing of the American Himalayan Foundation. As summer travel season approaches, many of us wonder what we can do to lighten our eco-footprint when we travel. Jim Sano has some suggestions. Well, there are a few things that are top of mind. Um, one is the obvious is take fewer, longer trips, <laughs> um, which in this day and age is uh, somewhat challenging to do. Um, but certainly over time, the length of people's holidays has uh, uh, decreased, over, you know, dr- pretty dramatically. Because um, we're working so much, right? Work all, yeah. Right, that's right, especially Americans. Um, the other thing is, is pay attention to your uh, routes. Many people don't know that a, a great majority of your carbon footprint is um, associated with takeoffs and landings. So while your airfare may be less if you do a one-stop, if you take a direct flight, your footprint would be far, far less. The other thing is obviously the uh, class of service. Uh, if you're in first class or business class, it could be seven or nine times the footprint as if you're in economy. And lastly, the other thing is um, to consider offsetting your footprint by one of the offset providers. On offsets, Jim Sano, tell us what an offset is and how complicated they are, because that's a very murky world. Well, it is murky. And very simplistically, um, it is basically um, purchasing a credit that, let's say, is associated with forest. And forests uh, obviously absorb carbon dioxide and uh, and obviously, if the forests are burning, they release carbon dioxide. And so there are different types of credits. Um, you know, one that is, is in Nepal is biogas fuels, for example, alternative fuels. And of course, they vary in quality uh, tremendously, um, as you well know. But the, um, the ones to look for are what's called the gold standard projects. So that's a certification, like a a seal of approval, a good housekeeping seal of approval. If you're looking to do some good to offset the bad of the pollution you put in the air by planting trees or capturing gas or other things. Right, right. And so um, the offset providers, um, which you purchase in in essence these credits, they are of varying quality, I would say. And... All of uh, World Wildlife Fund's employee travel is offset, and so our climate team and the international headquarters really pays attention to this um, 
and, and really selects a provider uh, that is based really on a lot of scientific rigor. Why don't airlines make it easier for you when you're clicking on Expedia, Travelocity, Orbitz, or anywhere else, make it easier for you to offset? Uh, they don't want you to think about the bad thing you're doing when you click? Well, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when you book a United Airlines ticket, there, there is a part after you book to give you the option to offset. Okay. Uh, and it's through a company called Sustainable Travel International. And there are other ways, you know, in terms of travel companies. Um, one of uh, the travel company that WWF partners with, uh, called Natural Habitat Adventures, they build in the offset into mm -hmm. the cost of their trip. So people don't really have to worry about that. Um, but they just made a conscious decision that, you know, this is the way we're going to do it. I was traveling to a climate conference once on Virgin America, and uh, they have those you know, sexy screens. You order your sandwich and your drink, and there was a carbon offset. And so I pushed the carbon offset, and the flight attendant came up and said, here's your drink, here's your sandwich, and looked in the cart and said, I just can't find this carbon offset. And I said, well, no, that's like this thing to make me feel better for being here on this plane. And, and, and he said, oh, you're the first person that ever ordered wow. that before. Also, Jim Sano, tell us how cruise ships may not be as dirty as we think they are. Well, the latest generation cruise ships, again, it, uh, economics drive a lot of this be because, as you might imagine, a large cruise ship burns a lot of fuel. And so there's a very powerful incentive to be efficient. And some of the newer generation ships, um, they go to great lengths to, uh, to reduce their fuel consumption and that that uh, is engine technology. It's even to the hull design, the, the paint that covers the hull so it has the least amount of friction going through the water. And then the other thing that, is, that I found very interesting about uh, cruise ships, you know, some of them can be as large as 6,500 passengers and 2,500 crew. And you might think, um, boy, that's a huge footprint. But when you actually put um, you're, let's say you're taking a cruise to Alaska and you put your numbers in the um, carbon footprint calculator, you'll find that on a large cruise vessel, your footprint is half of that as a small, let's say, 100-passenger vessel or if, because there's one propulsion system and that footprint is distributed over 3,000 people. Hmm. So um, those are you know, some of the things that aren't always evident but if you go to these calculators and you start playing around with, well, should I drive or fly? Or should I uh, take a large vessel in terms of my f footprint or a smaller vessel? Nurbu Tenzing, tell us some fabulous places that you think that if uh, young people or any other people want to see some amazing places in the world, what's, what's top of the list for you? Well, top of the list always for me is the uh, Nepal up in the Mount Everest area. You know, we have unequivocally the highest, most beautiful mountains in the world. Uh, you know, people would say, well, you know, there's all these trekkers over there, these mountain climbers over there, you know, why should I go? But the mountains are the same. Uh, you know, they're beautiful. Um, and unlike most parts of the world, uh, getting up to the Everest area, you can't get up there by a car. You can get to 9,000 feet by airplane, and then you start walking or hop on a yak. Um, so I, uh, you know, for me, it's home, but I, I love that part of the world, and uh, I really recommend uh, in anybody's lifetime to absolutely visit Nepal, visit the mountains, and, um, um, you know, see firsthand uh, how 
uh, richly endowed, um, you know, we are uh, with those uh, mountains and to experience the people. And that's, I think, people who go to that part of the world fall in love uh, with the mountains and the people. And that's what connects them. And that's why people want to keep going back. Tell us how, you know, your dad is a very f- famous Sherpa. Tell us how the Sherpa culture and how the Sherpas have a, attained a certain status and prosperity, um, it, partly thanks to, to Sir Hillary and others. Yeah, I mean, Sir Edmund Hillary, um, soon after he uh, climbed Everest, went on to build some 27 schools. And uh, uh, the Sherpa community, you know, in the past uh, 65 years since my father and Ed, uh, climbed Everest has changed a lot. And, uh, you know, as an indigenous group of people coming from the 15th century to the 20th century in a period of 40 years because of education, we've really been able to make the transition well. And we've taken responsibility uh, for our communities up there. We've taken over the uh, very much in control of the economy, although not the Everest economy, which is another uh, story for the for the climbers. If you're just joining us, we're talking about travel in the age of climate change. I'm Greg Dalton. My guest is Norbu Tenzing, president of the American Himalayas Foundation. Also, Jim Sano, vice president for travel, tourism, and conservation with the World Wildlife Fund, and Jen Palmer is founder of Women for Wildlife. Jen Palmer, let's get your list in terms of your top mm-hmm. travel destinations, your favorite places in the world. Well, it's interesting. To. He mentioned the the top of the mountain, and I like to go under the water. So I I really have enjoyed my time and feel very, very fortunate to be able to spend time in, in different areas where there's islands and coral and a, more of a marine ecosystem and, and the communities that thrive from a deep connection with that. So um, I feel very special to have spent time in uh, on an expedition about two years crossing the South Pacific. Um, so I, I think that to me, anywhere in the South Pacific, you're going to have an extraordinary experience. I'm a wildlife biologist. So I typically get drawn to those places that have incredible animals and uh, spent quite a bit of time in the Galapagos Islands. And it's a, an extremely unique place um, to have a, an interaction with a wide variety of animals, both above and below the, the water. So I would say that's high on my list. But there are places not, not very far away um, down in Baja, Mexico, with extraordinary wildlife and, and, and a beautiful culture. And it's not as expensive. It's not as far in terms of your imprint of, of carbon. And I think that there are a lot of places close by that you can get out there and have these adventures as well. Explain to us the impact, the connection between uh, carbon pollution, ocean acidification, and coral bleaching, because that has tremendous impact yeah. for wildlife and also a lot of people, subsistence fishermen who rely yeah. on those coral reefs at the bottom of the food chain. Yeah, it's a really complex issue, and I think a lot of people do not, don't really fully grasp the the connection that every one of us has to it. So just as you learn about the forests and how important forests are for our air, um, ocean is the other 50% of that air that you're breathing through phytoplankton and these incredible ecosystems that provide oxygen for us to breathe and also is is a carbon sink. And so just as we've got a lot of issues going on in the forest, we've got a lot of issues going on in the ocean. And as the ocean is trying to absorb that high level of carbon dioxide, we're seeing a really high, high jump in terms of temperature of the ocean and changes in pH and acidity. And that has dramatic effects on very fragile ecosystems such as coral reefs. And those ecosystems actually act as a like a nursery for fisheries. So if you like to eat seafood, 
um, and your coral is gone, then you're going to have a pretty dramatic shift in the availability of the kinds of, of food you're going to be able to eat. Um, and so whether it's the oxygen that's being impacted or the food that we're eating, um, it really it has, it has a pretty extreme uh, connection to me to everybody um, that we don't always necessarily think of when we first think of the ocean and, and climate, um, as well as the wildlife and, and all of the, the complexities that they're facing. And we mentioned plastic pollution, and plastic pollution is a, a very profound issue in the ocean. And in fact, in a lot of places in the ocean, there's more, 20 times percent more plastic than there is plankton. Um, and it acts as like a big soup all, all across the ocean. And a lot of people have heard of these sort of garbage patch areas, um, these island-like floating surfaces of plastic, but it's actually like a soup that goes through the water column. And that plastic also has a, a pretty severe impact on the ecosystems in their totality. Um, and plastic is connected to a lot of the issues we're talking about today. So. And yet a, lo a lot of climate is thought to be a very dark story, and yet marine protected areas are one of the bright spots, you know, Jen Palmer, where there, uh, there are places yeah. that have been set aside where actually ecosystems come back. There are good news stories in the ocean. There are. There are really good news stories. I, one of the sites I spent quite a lot of time at as a wildlife biologist is in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And um, it's now been designated a marine national monument. And I'm going to attempt the name Papahunamukuakea. And uh, <laughs> yes, I did it. <laughs> uh, President Bush started that. In he did. And then Obama expanded it. And so it's, it's a very, uh, it's a gem left on the planet uh, where Hawaiian monk seals live, which are highly endangered species of seal. You've got extraordinary populations of shark, and shark populations are key for coral reef ecosystems to stay vibrant, for that seafood population to be able to thrive. Um, you've got 14 million seabirds that are floating around. This is where all the green sea turtles that you see in Hawaii, this is where they go to lay their eggs and to breed. It's a really, really special place, and it's a place most people don't even know exists. When you look at a globe, you have to really look hard to find it. Um, but it's it's a very uh, special spot, and I'm excited that it's protected, and I hope that it remains protected. Now, um, I wanted to mention the other place that I really enjoyed visiting uh, was the Galapagos, mm. uh, where the tourism is run in such a wonderful mm. way. And um, you know, for a Sherpa, water is for drinking, so getting <laughs> snorkeling was quite difficult, but I really uh, enjoyed that one time that I went over there, and I had so much more appreciation for... Uh, you know, all the uh, creatures over there and the way uh, the tourism was being managed with all the yeah. ships uh, going What, what did out. you see uh, when you went snorkeling? Uh, I saw everything. Um, I can't remember everything that I saw, but a lot of the time I just uh, I was uh, just uh, just so uh, being able to be so close to nature, to mm -hmm. be so close to the birds and for them to have no fear of humans mm -hmm. was quite special. I've never seen that anywhere, so... Mm -hmm. So you're used to breathing at the top of the world, and now you're breathing <laughs> underwater. underwater. Yeah, very different. <laughs> Jim Sano, one place that some people want to go snorkeling these days is Cuba. It's a mm. hot travel destination. Actually, a fair amount of Cuba has actually been pretty well protected because it hasn't been trampled by tourism. Tell us about that. That is correct. It's one <laughs> of the best protected um, marine ecosystems in the Caribbean. Um, and WWF uh, Canada and the Netherlands have been active um, in Cuba, the U.S. has not been permitted to do so and have been uh, instrumental in setting aside some of these marine protected areas. Um, you know, one of the more famous ones is uh, called Gardens, Garden of the Queens, mm -hmm. or Jardines de la Reina. 
uh, where there are still, you can still swim around with 400 pound groupers. Wow, pretty amazing. We're going to go to a lot of sharks. A lot of sharks. <laughs> a too, lot yeah? of sharks. Right. <laughs> We're going to go to our lightning round, a couple, some quick questions and quick answers for our guests today at Climate One. Uh, first ones are, are true or false. Um, first for Jim Sano, true or false, you have traveled the world, but you have never been to Paris or Italy. How did you know that? <laughs> um, that's true. What? Um, Norbu Tenzing, you have seen the Yeti. False. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is an association. I'm going to mention a, a person, place, or thing. You just mentioned the first thing that comes to your mind, starting with Jen Palmer, Glacier National Park. Oh, beautiful. Jim Sato, Bears Ears National Monument. Tragic. Norbu Tenzing, Tibet. Another tragedy. All right, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round of applause for getting through that. <laughs> Norbu Tenzig, traveling to developing countries, poor countries, tell us how people ought to think about having some humility when they go to those countries where the people serving someone in a restaurant or in a hotel, um, yeah, just tell us how to be humble when traveling in a developing country. Well, when you're traveling, whether you're going to another country, you're basically going to somebody else's house. And so you should be very respectful when you go into somebody's house. And um, travel etiquette is, I think, uh, very uh, important to be sensitive to uh, local culture, um, to be aware of what the local religion is and, uh, and the way you interact with, uh, with, with people. You know, the world today is very different than it was 30 years ago with the Internet and with the, all the communication we have today. So it's a very small world that we live in. And um, so it's increasingly uh, important for us to, um, when you travel to the Himalayas, when you travel, you know, to the Galapagos or the, or, or, or the Antarctic, you know, tread lightly, be respectful of local people and, um, uh, you know, enjoy uh, these places, enjoy uh, these cultures uh, while they're there and, um, and to think about it when you come back and try and do something to give back and make a difference. Tell us what the America Himalayan Foundation is doing to help educate girls in combat trafficking. Well, the, uh, each year some 20,000 uh, young girls um, trafficked out of Nepal into different parts of the world. And trafficking has uh, many different uh, spaces. The, the AHF works uh, in the area of education and prevention. And so we have some 10,500 girls in a program right now across 500 schools in Nepal to stop girl trafficking. And, um, um, and all it takes is $100 to put a young girl through school and uh, you know, give, them, give her all the support that she needs to make sure that she has a life ahead. And I've been to the villages after the earthquake. I've, you know, I've been to remote parts of Nepal. I've seen firsthand uh, what traffickers uh, do to people. And... Uh, you know, prevention is uh, something that is uh, very important because when somebody has been trafficked already, the damage is mostly done. Right. Thank you for that work. If you're just joining us, we're talking about travel in the age of climate change with Norbu Tenzig, president of the American Himalayan Foundation, Jim Sano, vice president for travel and tourism at the Conservation of the World Wildlife Fund, and Jen Palmer, founder of Women for Wildlife. I'm Greg Dalton. We'll go to Yai's questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name's Yai. Um, you had earlier mentioned about some town in Indonesia that was being disrupted from climate change. Mm -hmm. Can you further 
go on that? Like, how were they actually being affected, like their coral reefs? Sure, yeah. It's the, the Bajau people in the area called Sampella, which is in Indonesia. And years ago, they would live on boats, and they would travel and, and follow the ocean, and that was their livelihood. Um, they are now living in settlements, so the government has basically enforced um, them to be able to stay in one space, so they're not migrating, they're not living on boats the way that they used to. And so they have this this home base in the middle of the ocean on uh, very rickety structures, which are very susceptible to storms. So as the storm levels increase, their homes are being damaged quite often. But more so, the, the, the pressing issue is their access to seafood and to fish as their livelihood. That is their only primary economic um, resource that they have. So now as fish populations are on such decline, the fishermen have to go further and further and further out and stay longer and longer and longer just to get less and less fish. And so you've got people that um, are running out of food and they're running out of resources. And then the coral itself is being greatly impacted by the increased level of temperature. So you're having a lot of coral bleaching um, and that is just a trickle down effect into the entire ecosystem. Ecosystem. And so you've got people that are deeply connected to the ocean for their existence um, and, and their religion and, and their livelihoods, um, and therefore their culture is at risk. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Um, so I personally think that um, travel is a good way to um, learn about cultures and um, protect the environment as well. And I'm just curious, what's your opinions on the idea of novel ecosystem? Like basically just letting the ecosystem be itself, like being modified by humans and not putting efforts to kind of reverse the change. Because right now it's like we just kind of have so many stuff that going on in the world right now and many people arguing that the political and economic cause is not worth the change. Jim Sano, the idea that l let it happen. Basically, let nature take its course. Or right? human intervention in nature. That you, could, you could stop nature at any point in time and that would be right. artificial. It's always changing. Right. Well, obviously, then you get to the, the question of if you let nature take its course, how will that impact people, uh, sustainable livelihoods, and the economy. Uh, we're already seeing, you know, for example, in last Sunday's New York Times, um, there was an article about Easter Island um, and the rising sea levels and how that's threatening some of the uh, sites that travelers visit. Mm. Well, 100,000 people go to Easter Island every year, and it's a $70 million uh, economic benefit to the islands. And so... If you take that impact of climate change, coral reefs is the other big one. Um, you go to the Himalaya, where um, that whole watershed, two billion people rely upon uh, that watershed for you know, their daily water needs. Um, you look at Syria. A lot of scholars basically attribute that conflict to um, climate change. A drought caused some people to move. The CIA Correct. concluded that right. there was drought amplification in Syria. And I highly recommend the movie called, if you haven't seen it already, is The Burden. It's a documentary that um, is talking to the U.S. military uh, heads of command and how climate change is really the threat of it in terms of uh, global conflict. Very enlightening movie um, in terms of 
uh, the ramifications if, if you don't do anything. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. You mentioned plastics in the oceans. I was wondering if you could elaborate on the effect on the ecosystem and communities that lived off of the ecosystem. Absolutely. There have been a, a lot of different research projects looking at all of the gyres around the ocean. Um, so gyres are areas where the currents are sort of circulating and so all the plastics that are coming from land end up in the ocean and it's broken down into smaller particles. So it's not just big chunks of plastic floating on the surface. It's tiny little particles that go all the way down into the water column and so every Thing that you can think of in the ocean that might eat plankton or small fish or some small crustacean, what they're eating now is plastic. And that's working its way up into the food chain, including into the food that we are eating as humans. Um, we're seeing a lot of plastic inside, not just inside the stomachs of different things that we're eating, but in the tissues as well. Um, so it is, it's very concerning. And, and if you are someone who consumes seafood, you should be very uh, aware and keep up with the research and, and the data on that. But in terms of the connection of the wildlife, you've got seabirds that go far offshore, like the albatross, that scoop up what they think is going to be fish or some kind of crab off the surface of the ocean. And then they fly all the way back to these really remote islands. And seabirds actually regurgitate uh, their food into their little chick that's kind of still trying to grow up. Instead of giving it that chick fish, it's now giving it a lot of plastic. And so you're seeing, especially now in, in albatross, where you've got massive die-offs of an albatross population that lives in the middle of nowhere. And you look at the stomach contents, and it's full of tops to plastic bottles and, and little um, lighters and toothbrushes and wrappers. And I mean, you can literally look inside the stomach of an animal that's never left its nest. And and see the impact of something that's happening thousands of miles away. And so it's, it's very concerning. And then the connection to, to travel and tourism, like Jim mentioned, you've got places like Bali, which are gorgeous. The, Bali is an, an amazing destination and part of Indonesia. It is covered in plastic, and now it's greatly impacting the reef ecosystem. So you go for a snorkel in a place like Bali, and you think you're going to see this, this pristine spot. And there are literally plastic bags floating in the water as you go by. So these are issues that are impacting the economy as well as the communities that live there that thrive off of that uh, resource. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Yeah, I think a lot of the solutions that are proposed, I think they tend to sort of like assume like a certain level of like financial sort of means or be sort of like, you know, outside of the reach of some people. So yeah, one thing I was kind of wondering about was how the kind of issue could be broadened or like solutions could be sort of um, offered to like a broader range of people of different like socioeconomic sort of circumstances, both in places like the U.S. and also like in nations around the world where like, you know, there's problems with like food insecurity or just conflict or something like that, how climate change can sort of like move on beyond those barriers and people can be made aware of what they can actually do. Well, there's, there's no doubt that um, in terms of transferring technology, for example, when I first went to Nepal in 1980, um, the population was somewhere in the vicinity of about 13 million. Now it's about 28 million. Um, and the primary so source of um, heat and energy and for cooking and so forth was wood. But over time, um, you know, people had to travel further and further away to get wood. And so very slowly, this uh, technology has become a lot more affordable 
And so even in some of the remote areas, you see these mini hydro plants, for example, that or biogas stoves is another uh, example, or solar technology where um, you know the, the benefits from the wealthy wealthier countries are being transferred to uh, developing countries, and that is in turn um, improving their livelihoods. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. All right. So there are a lot of young teens and many generations that are currently rising each year. And we're kind of told that global warming is, and climate change is an issue, but we're not really able to experience that on an emotional level. So how do you think that teens can kind of get this message that climate change is an issue? Um, what is your input on like spreading this idea and getting teens to actually take a step forward? Yeah, I would love to speak on this. I, I work with teens all across the world, and it's what gives me hope and inspiration. And I think part of what draws me to, to work so closely with teens is that you are so innovative and creative and come up with out-of-the-box ways of getting people involved and engaged. And we are seeing this, obviously, not just in our country, but all around the world. I would say use your voice in the way that resonates with you. If you're an artist, if you are a social media nut, if you are a musician, if you're really good at bringing people together, like really express your voice and do it in a way that's going to have an impact. You've got all the tools at your fingertips. You're already looking at a screen that's connected to the world all day long. You, you are at a place in history that is unparalleled to create massive change around the world. And so I would say find an issue that you are really passionate about or that is really pulling your heartstrings and find a mentor, find an organization if you really aren't sure where to start. There are people there that want to help and that need your help. And your voice matters more on this issue than I think almost any issue that's happening right now. Because it will be your generation that is trying to come up with bigger, bigger solutions to address the massive amount of impact that this is going to have, not just today, but especially tomorrow. And I would add... Um, uh, tell stories. Mm -hmm. Telling stories is a really powerful way to to share um, your uh, what you're experiencing around the world, and that could be halfway around the world and connecting with a, a teenager or a young adult mm -hmm. here. Um, it's amazing what you could do with a, a one minute clip, mm -hmm. uh, yep. and and be that whatever social media platform that you well. Um, and they don't have to be professional or anything, mm -mm. but it's just uh, making it real. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Do you mind elaborating a little bit about how corals being affected by uh, basic things that we're doing to the environment, such as fishing? And um, how is that affecting um, environments that have been there for hundreds of years? And how is it getting destroyed in a matter of actually days or weeks. Sure, yeah. In relation to coral and climate change, the, the biggest impact right now really does have to do with the temperature of the ocean. So you, coral is, is an organism that is pretty sensitive. It, it kind of likes its, its sweet spot in terms of the conditions of, of life, just as, as we do. And if it gets just a little bit too hot or a little bit too cold, um, you know, they're, they're going to change. And what's happening is the temperature of the ocean is just reaching a level that it's in some places 
is. It's like a bathtub. It's so hot. And it's as if, as if we would get a fever. And maybe one or two or three degrees doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the matter of life and death for an organism. Um, and so that's you know, really causing the, the bleaching that you hear about coral bleaching is the actual, um, the start of it is the, the algae inside of coral. The coral kind of uses uh, the inside of it. It's called zooxanthellae. It's an algae that um, provides energy to the coral. It's very, it's very sensitive. This whole organism is sensitive. So if the temperature rises too much, the algae can't live anymore. It dies, and the coral loses its color because algae is very vibrant in color. When it loses its color, then you've got that white coral, which is really fragile. It's not, maybe not dead yet, but it's very, very, very sick. So if it's very, very sick, and then you add overfishing pressures or you add a change in acidity to the water, you add a big storm that goes through. You've got ecosystems, like you said, that are thousands, tens of thousands of years old, dead in an instant. And, and, and we're seeing that all across the world, especially right now across the Great Barrier Reef, but based, you know, that band around the equatorial waters because it's just getting so toasty in our oceans. These organisms just can't survive. Let's end on an upbeat. Jim Santa, what gives you hope? Young people. <laughs> Tuck mine. Jen Palmer? Uh, resiliency. Our, our environment actually is quite strong and resilient if, if we just let it do what it needs to do and provide the protection it needs. Robert Tenzing, what gives you hope? I think uh, humans are basically uh, compassionate by nature, and, but I find a lot of hope in young people, and mm. especially today, to you know, listen to some very intelligent questions, many of which I couldn't ask. I'm glad these two are here. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about traveling mindfully with Norbu Tenzing, Vice President of the American Himalayan Foundation, Jennifer Palmer, founder of Women for Wildlife, and Jim Sano, Vice President for Travel, Tourism, and Conservation at the World Wildlife Fund. As you plan your summer travels, are you considering buying carbon offsets? Please share your offset experiences with us on Twitter or Facebook. We'll be taking a deep dive into the Offset's controversy on a future show and might include your comments. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review on your favorite podcast app. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where the show is based. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.